Welcome. You are listening to Conversations from Christ Church Cranbrook. We are a faith community located in Metro Detroit who have been transformed by God's acceptance, love, and grace. Whoever you are, wherever you find yourself on the journey of faith today, we pray this podcast will feed your soul and inspire your spirit. Thank you, Father Chris, and nice to see everybody. It's a strange dynamic, but I will get used to it. And uh, first of all, I want to apologize to everyone. I um, I had some recent treatment on my mouth, and I'm almost fully recovered, but I'm about 80%. So if you don't understand me, then don't hesitate to mention that. I'll try to speak as clearly as I can, but not completely there. I'm a little self-conscious of it still, but, uh, but I... So um, I just want, I'd be glad I didn't say that the quality of the speaker has disintegrated. On week last week, we had the, the Reverend Dr. Michael Battle, who uh, is very well esteemed, walked with uh, Bishop Tutu, a future, uh, certainly a future saint. And today you're left with me, someone who, when Father Bill stands in the pulpit and says he's preaching to sinners, I'm always tempted to raise my hand and feel guilty. So, uh, so hang in there with me, okay? Uh, and in terms of format today, so I'll pay attention here too. Um, uh, in format, we're looking at Article 1 of the Apostles' Creed. And for me, that is, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And we're looking at that, as Father Chris said, with Professor Ben Meyer's book, The Apostles' Creed, A Guide to the Ancient Catechism. Uh, And then we'll have uh, some questions with the time that's left for that for our theological probe, Father Chris, and we'll go from there. Um, Very briefly, uh, Professor Ben Meyer's is the author of this book. He's the director of the Millis Institute in Brisbane, Australia. He teaches theology there. And uh, I'm quite certain if he were here today, I'd have a much more elegant speaking voice than I'd have. The introduction of the book by Professor Myers cites to one of my all-time favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis, where he says, quote, every age has its own outlook. It is especially good at seeing certain truths and especially liable to make certain mistakes. We all, therefore, need the books that will correct the characteristic mistakes of our own period. And that means the old books. So that's what we're looking at here today. Professor Myers argues that by focusing on what's current, we rob ourselves of the insights and questions of those who have gone before us. On the other hand, by reading our forebears in faith, we engage ideas that otherwise might never occur to us. And as it relates to the Apostles' Creed, I thought it might be very helpful to do just kind of a brief historical perspective of when this is written and the context it was written. And so, you know, we're used to saying uh, B.C. and A.D. And in the last 20, 30 years, scholars have begun to call that uh, B.C.E., before Common Era and then Common Era. And roughly 586 B.C.E., the Jewish first temple was destroyed and the population of Judea was taken into Babylonia. 167 BCE, the Maccabean revolt took place 
And uh, the, the Hasmonean autonomy in Judea took place over the next hundred and some years, where they ruled themselves, although they had been ruled by different empires over the years. 63 um, BCE was a conquest of Judea by the Roman general Pompey. So that's when under Jesus' time, you see that Rome ruled in Judea. 37 BCE to 4 CE, common era, and on the common era, Herod the Great was the king of Judea under Roman rule. And he greatly rebuilt the temple during this period. This is the same Herod the Great that you hear about in the gospels who had uh, killed every male who was two years or under after Jesus was born. 18 to 36 common era, Caiaphas served as a Jewish high priest in Judea. The same Caiaphas who the gospel tells us wanted to have Jesus killed and was chiefly charged with promoting his death. 20 to 36 common era, Pontius Pilate was the prefect of Judea, the same Pontius Pilate who washed his hands. 30 common era, Jesus was crucified, died, resurrected, reappeared again to his apostles and descended into heaven for what we now call, as we're now here today, celebrating Trinity Sunday. The 50s common era, Paul the Apostle wrote the epistles, the letters to the Romans, the Corinthians, Thessalonians, etc. 70s common era, the second temple was destroyed by the Romans, which was a very important time in the history of uh, Ju Judaism. This is the second time their temple had been destroyed, and now the great diaspora takes place where Jewish people are spread throughout the world. 70s to 75 common era, the Gospel of Mark was written. 80 to 90 common era, the Gospel of Matthew was written. 90 to 100 common era, the Gospel of Luke was written. 95 to 120 common era, the Gospel of John was written. Now, Professor Myers indicates that the earliest portions of the Apostles' Creed were written in, in reference in the 100s to 200s common era. So this is just shortly after the Gospel of John was written, they start to cite little segments. 245 to 316 common era was the persecution of the Christians, which peaked under the Roman emperor Diocletian. And 323 common era, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman empire by Roman emperor Constantine's edict of Milan. And it was from that point forward that the apostles creed really became the formal and more widely used uh, creed that were known as a in Rome and throughout the world. Uh, with that being said, my uh, task is to look at Article 1 of the Apostles' Creed and outline what uh, profession. Sure, is someone talking? Ooh, okay, so our Article 1 of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. The first word is I. And Professor Myers argued in his book that when we say I, we really mean we that we are part of the community of believers of the triune God. And in terms of distinguishing that, if you belong to a company or an organization, he talks about how, uh, and I certainly experienced this, but we create mission statements. Everyone gets together in a room and you talk about it. And then by the time you're done, you create this generic statement that nobody can. Right? So, and the other way, if you have, uh, if you have 20 something, you go into weddings and times you see that it's very current now 
for 20-somethings to want to get married um, on their own, maybe have a destination wedding uh, and have it outside of the church and recite their own vows. Professor Myers talks about this, that when they recite their own vows, they think they're doing something very individualistic. But in reality, if you go to about 10 of these, you see that they're saying the same kind of cliche things over and over again. And what is really missing here is the tradition of the church. And what's missing here, most importantly, is God. And I just couldn't help uh, but bring something in today that I just, uh, I know Father Bill's a big art lover, and I am as well. I have a favorite gallery in California um, that I like to get art from. And, uh, and I, just total coincidence, I'll try to put this up so you can see it on the screen as well. Total coincidence that a few weeks ago, I saw this and it hit me to the core. And I thought, I thought how, what a statement on modern society. And then it just happened to come in on Friday, which was two days before this. And I thought, wait, well, I'm going to bring this to church with me. So this is, if hopefully you can see it, um, if I'm... I follow up Father Krista. I think, I think that's the camera. Okay. Right up to it. Okay. So hopefully you can see it. Can you see it? Give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Okay. There we go. Okay. <laughs> that's the story of my life. Thumbs up or thumbs down. So, and here we go. Oh, yeah. Can you actually bring it closer? I really couldn't see the detail on the bottom. Sure. Thank so, you. There we go. I can kind of see it now. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. So this is from the artist uh, Deville, and at first I thought it was a play on words and it was really double, but he's actually, that's, he took his wife's name in uh, Britain, and the statement that's being made here is we see Jesus on the cross, but they've now just taken it from God in kind of an Instagram moment. As, uh, they're just photographing or videotaping the Son of God. And I thought, well, that really fits in nicely with what we're talking about here. That's, what could be more individualistic and I statement than that as compared to the I that the Apostles' Creed wants us to think about that turns into the we of the triune God. So that is I from um, um, the Apostles' Creed, from Article 1. The second word is believe. And believe Professor Myers states that when we say the Apostles' Creed, we are reminded that life itself is founded on trust. Christians in the ancient, and I apologize to the people who just arrived. I had some recent treatment on my mouth. I won't bore you with it, but um, so I'm not speaking entirely clearly, but I hope you can hear me okay. Christians in the ancient church went naked to the waters of baptism. The second birth is like the first, according to Professor uh, Myers. We are totally dependent when we're baptized. We bring nothing with us except life. The birth cry of baptism is the threefold, I believe in the creed, a cry of total trust of the triune God. Professor Myers notes that the tragic quality of life comes partly from the fact that human beings are not always trustworthy, but we need trustworthiness in order to have life. So that is a great dichotomy. We are not trustworthy always, but we need trustworthiness to feel love. And the point that he makes that believe states in Article 1 of the Apostles' Creed is that God 
is always trustworthy. The gospel holds out to us the promise of a totally trustworthy God. Professor Meyer cites the fourth century quote, which again, that's the 300s, common era, of Christian theologian Augustine. Quote, if you can't understand, believe, and then you'll understand. So now we're up to the third clause in that sentence. I believe in God the Father. Professor Myers notes that in the Gospels, Jesus repeatedly references God as his father. He relates to God as his own father, and he invites his followers to share in the same relationship. He calls God my father and your father in John 20, 17, and your heavenly father in Matthew 6, 14. He teaches his disciples to say our father in Matthew 6, 9. That is to stand alongside Jesus and address God in the same way that Jesus does. Professor Myers in his book notes that in current times, many Christians feel uneasy using the phrase father, that it is seen as somehow a masculine phrase and inappropriate. He points out that even as early as the second, third century, early Christian leaders often compare God to a breastfeeding mother. Early Christian teachers also differentiated the God of the Gospels from the many Roman and pagan gods. And that was what would happen. Jesus came, Jesus died, was resurrected, ascended to heaven, and then they waited for the kingdom. And then 100 years went by, 200 years went by. And Rome had many different types of gods. Rome had many different types of pagan gods. And they were always trying to find connection with the different gods. These gods could be, and it was the Greco-Roman world that had gods that were lustful, gods that were unpredictable, gods that were passionate, gods that were rage. Um, and the point that Professor Myers makes here is that the God that we believe in is none of those gods. He's a God, he's an unchangeable, totally loving God. And that when we say God the Father, we mean God in this greater context. Next out of that clause is the word almighty, which is a very powerful word. I believe in God, the Father almighty. God is almighty, as Professor Myers argues, but God is not controlling. And we all experience this in our own lives. Professor Myers notes that the true power is not the ability to control. Controlling behavior is actually a sign of weakness and insecurity. True power is the ability to love and enable without reserve. In the Apostles' Creed, we confess the three great movements of God's power. God lovingly brought the world into being. God lovingly brought Jesus into being. And God lovingly still shows us uh, the love that we have today through the kindness and the prophets that we see and the saints that we see in our current lives. At every point, as uh, Professor Meyer cites to the theologian from Britain, uh, Sarah Coakley, at every point, God's power is hidden. It is a gentle omnipotence. So the God is constant, gentle, but not subject to whims that have been taught in the early, in the early days of these pagan gods. The final uh, section of this clause is I is maker of heaven and earth. 
So I believe in God, the father of my maker of heaven and earth. And this gets back to what I was just talking about. Professor Myers talks about in the Jesus came, Jesus died, was resurrected and ascended into heaven. And then hundreds of years went by and people began to say, well, wait a second, what's going on here? And uh, as time developed, there's something that developed called Gnosticism which was, uh, it's G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S, which means knowers. And they actually began to say that Jesus was not a real human being, that he was just a spirit. And they began to argue that the earthly body was bad. And this developed, and they had different arguments that they made back and forth, but essentially they argued that the first God, the, uh, the deity that created us, is a bad uh, entity that creates this unclean body. And as Professor, um, as Professor Meyer says, such teachings were diverse, but what they had in common was a dualism that divided the bad creator from the good redeemer and the bad world of flesh from the good human spirit. You actually see this in a very, if you ever get the chance, there's a, just discovered in Egypt in 1945, the Gospel of Thomas, which, um, you know, uh, 2,000 years later, they discovered the Gospel of Thomas, which about three quarters of it contains the same state, statements of Jesus that are in the Synoptic Gospels. And then it goes off on what we would consider to be a tangent with some very far out there statements that are allegedly from Jesus that are thought perhaps to be from uh, Gnostic uh, uh, followers hundreds of years later. Uh, that are included in the Gospel of Thomas. So it's actually a very interesting thing to read. And what uh, Professor Myers says here is that right from the start, Christians were marked by their positive stance towards creation, as opposed to the thinking that the body is dreary and that Jesus wasn't real. The Gospel of John begins by retelling Israel's creation story in the beginning, John 1.1, Genesis 1.1. The followers of Jesus believed that in him, they had encountered the enabling source of creation. Though many evil things happen in this world, Christians confess that we are still living in God's good creation. It is a sick world that needs healing, not an evil world that needs destruction. Mm -hmm. So what that argues is that the Apostles' Creed was written in response to these Gnostic, in large part, the Gnostic argument that created pagan gods, that created the idea that Jesus wasn't real, that the body is very. And this first article and then in the Apostles' Creed all together is saying that God is real, that Jesus was real, that Jesus did die, that Jesus was resurrected, that Jesus did ascend to heaven that Jesus is part of the triune God. So that is Article 1 of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And now I'll turn it over for questions and for Father Chris uh, and others to bring your thoughts to the discussion. That was uh, really great. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that. Thank you. Uh, did everybody just catch them? What he just summarized there was really well, so just some of the theological implications of the first sentence. Uh, I thought that was amazingly, uh, and this is exactly what I was hoping this pastor to do, is help us open up all of this. Um, 
And I will just offer a couple of points that I heard that I thought that really landed with me, and then maybe we could invite others. Uh, I thought um, that the point about father not being about, don't focus on the masculinity of the pronouns that we would use today, that we might occur to us today, but instead think of the familial aspect, father, papa. It's, turning, it's, it's, it's inviting us to think of God as a parent, as opposed to the way uh, pagans had often think out of gods, uh, as somebody to be feared, uh, someone to be appeased, um, someone that is not trustworthy at all, which then leads to the next one, or the one just before that, the idea of belief being about trust. I love that. I'm putting my trust in this, in this God. Um, I love the uh, point about uh, Almighty uh, being a gentle omnipotence. Um, and then finally, maker of heaven and earth. I have never heard, never thought that that is a deliberate way of connecting uh, heaven and earth, meaning this is a God who is in both heaven and earth. That earth is not, as you said, um, an evil place to be condemned, but a broken world to be healed. Uh, that's a very different theological idea that maybe we take for granted today, but they certainly didn't at the time of this. And to my friends who come uh, to, to religion or church faith without any background, that can be a very powerful idea that we see God in creation, that God is part of creation, not something separate. Uh, creation is it, God isn't at odds with creation, and neither should we be. God is, in fact, in creation. That, that is a powerful statement that I think would resonate with a lot of people today. So those are my observations. Anybody want to, you want to find any of those, uh, Professor? Or <laughs> uh, Shirley and Jessica both had comments in the chat. Go ahead. You want to summarize for us, Hunter? Let me see. Um, Shirley, you had a, a comment, an observation about the use of the word we. Do you want to expand on that a little bit? versus I. Yeah, I just thought by using I, I'm speaking for me because I don't know the thoughts of others. And then you go into the word we, now you're getting into others' minds. And um, I think that that's where I stand with it. I interpreted it um, in, I found, I found it enlightening what, the book and Don shared here about the word I. To me, it was a humbling of the self and an, almost an acquiescence into the communal, which is I, you know, one of the primary reasons I go to church. <laughs> so whenever I'm there, when I receive the Eucharist or when I stand with others and see all of you, I feel part of that body. And so I, I really appreciated the sense of the word I, not meaning me, but I, the we. And I think in the greater context of Professor Myers is saying that to put yourself back in the shoes of um, the Apostles' Creed, again, written in the 100s, 200s, 300s, 400s, 500s, it's written in response in many ways all of these diverse arguments and they were saying we because this is 
a baptismal beginning of the new community of God if we look outside of our current context and look back in time. The historical reference is really interesting. Jessica, you had a question about the reference to a sick world as frame. So I don't know if you're muted or not, but um, wondered if you wanted to expand on your question there. Okay, I don't know if even she's still on. So maybe if anybody else has a question. Jessica, I see you're on, but you're muted. I'll put myself on mute and let whoever wants to jump in, jump in. Isn't technology fun? <laughs> Anyone else have uh, thoughts or responses to what you've heard that um, struck you? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, Don, I like the fact that you stressed the word trustworthy. Some priest told me years ago that there are scholars who say that Creechy uh, translated this I trust in God. And frankly, silently, I say it that way because it makes me and creators less emphasis on me. It's my position in relation. Do you want to summarize that to folks online? This yeah. So, um, so uh, what was indicated uh, by Claire indi uh, indicated that when she looks at um, the Apostles' Creed, she puts. Uh, as she looks at trust, she looks at trust in her own uh, self in terms of how she phrases it. I hope I'm correctly that uh, it's important for her to trust and uh, and to trust God and to trust herself to trust others. And she actually silently reads that as she's reading the Apostles' Creed. She includes that in her, her mindset and her thought uh, as she's uh, saying the Apostles' Creed to herself. Did I sum that up okay? Yeah. English is a poor language. Well, every language has its limits. Ours certainly has limits when it comes to the word believe. I can say that I believe that two and two are four, or that 32 degrees Fahrenheit is the freezing point of water. And that is one kind of belief. That's assent to a fact. And I think that's the problem with presenting belief in God to people who rarely use it or aren't thinking of it in the sense of, I believe in you. Here, here's my water. I believe in you. I know you'll return it once you've used the money that I want you to have. And, and we don't do that. And people are trapped thinking that they have to assent to some entire factual ball of wax about an entity in the sky that they don't know what to think about. So Claire, thank you very much for introducing trust. I think that is essential to the conversation. Yeah, it makes it much more personal. It makes it much more relational. Yeah. Yeah, and then I think Augustine, I thought that was a quote that the professor cited out, if you can't understand, believe, and then you'll understand. And that kind of takes it out of your own, it takes it out of the I, puts it into the we again. Believe, and then you'll understand. Another 
Walter Mengi before Augustine said, I believe in order that I may understand. So maybe Augustine plagiarizes. It's, it really strikes me that the second word of this creed is foundational. And if you can't get your head around that one, how do you get your head around the rest? Um, I, I'm not so sure all the time about the belief part. Does anybody else struggle with that, that word and that commitment and that um, decision to trust? I do. <laughs> I think it's, it's hard because we don't necessarily all agree on a definition of what or who God is. So to declare a belief, you, like, much like you said, in scientific terms, there's evidence, there's repeated action over and over that you can, um, you know, can gather as evidence. And for God, everyone's, ex well, everyone's expression of God is very different. And so asking me to believe in, in what you believe God is and what I believe God is maybe two very different things. Um, and I think that's very hard for those new to the faith. Well, imagine, yeah, that's a beautiful statement. And you imagine now, uh, you know, I, I like you back personally in the history of things, right? So. We have such a high-tech, fancy world now. I'm speaking from an iPad. We're, we've got high technology. Everyone has an iPhone. Our faces are in all the time, inundated with information. In the early centuries, you had all this chaos going on. It's very low direct communication. And then the believers began to put this together with the bishops, the statement of the Apostles' Creed, and what are they saying? That's in their context of I believe. So very interesting that maybe sometimes we're at cross talk. You know, what does believe mean today versus what did it mean in the second century, third century, fourth century? And then what does that mean about God and our belief in God? And I thought, you know, Hunter was very open about sometimes the word believe. Um, you have questions about that. Um, it's human nature to question everything, especially when we're inundated with science. I was thinking this to myself, but I didn't include it. You know, we talk about heaven, et cetera. We know now you go to heaven and you, you look up into this heaven, you see a space shuttle, you see the stars. There's no evidence of God out there, but maybe God has created something that we are not supposed to see. And maybe there is something uh, that is omnipotent out there that we have no clue on what that heaven is, but we only think in human terms of this heaven that we look up into the sky and see Delta flying over, or we see the stars billions of miles away. That would be my only thought on that. And what do I know? I'm an attorney. I'm curious, um, is anybody here on the call, uh, when you first came to the Episcopal Church, did you come from a church, or maybe from no church, that didn't, that, was the creed new to you? And how did you experience that newness? Um, anyone have that experience? And I can tell you from my perspective, being new to the church, 
Uh, I heard it as uh, a pledge of allegiance to a bunch of ideas that I was having to make a mental assent to that I was still kind of like, I don't know about this. I'm just checking this out. You know? uh, thank you very much. Uh, so it, did, it, did, it was like I didn't participate in it because I didn't feel like I was part of the club. I was still exploring. It didn't seem like it was aimed at me. It seemed like it was aimed at members of the Anybody, and I'm just curious if anyone else had that kind of experience, even coming from a non-liturgical tradition. No, I came from a Missouri Synod Lutheran background originally, which would never use the Holy Catholic Church. It was always the Holy Christian Church, which I always took as just their bias against Catholics run amok still in the 20th century. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that, I think, in what, week two or three? <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, that's a, that one raises eyebrows. I had a newcomer ask me, I just have a question, Chris. Why do we pray for the Roman Catholic Church every Sunday? <laughs> well, sometimes they do mistakenly. They still do it. They, they, they large C Catholic. I don't, I don't know who was doing the proofreading that week, but you know, they must say that. Well, once again, we have a language problem. <laughs> it's not uncommon, even in modern American English, to hear somebody say, she has really Catholic tastes. Her tastes range from box, toccata, and fugue to hip-hop. All embrace it. That's what the word means. It doesn't mean Roman. Lowercase c. Lowercase c. Not uppercase c. I have I've been watching Sandy and Jessica's conversation in the chat and it's really interesting Sandy asks um, can there really be belief without an inner experience of communion with God and Jessica says hi Sandy I would say yes <laughs> I said oh that's really interesting can can you discuss with the class <laughs> Uh, I think for the folks in, here in person, I think it was um, can you have a belief in God, interpersonal experience in God? Oh. What, you know, it's the legal faith, right? What, what causes you to make that true? Um, this is Glynis, and uh, I. this makes me think about, I don't know who of you have seen the Santa Claus, but it just makes me think of that line in there that says, seeing isn't believing, believing is seeing. So I think for some people, maybe they, they have a moment with God that brings them to belief, but for others, maybe they believe and then they're able to feel that relationship with God. You know, it's a very um, personal thing that happens to everybody in a different path, in my opinion. I would offer as well, uh, in seminary, pretty much everybody reads a book called Praying Shapes Believing, and it articulates a kind of understanding that in the Anglican Episcopal tradition and really the mainline liturgical traditions, there's a real sense, you know, we do these scripted prayers, right? 
and they can get kind of rogue over time. They can get very familiar over time. They can maybe lose their freshness over time. But there's also an underlying understanding, theory, that um, praying shapes believing, meaning if we keep saying it, and we keep saying it, then it takes a deep root, a deeper root sometimes than we, have, than we necessarily always appreciate. Um, some, whether it's subconscious or sort of a, kind of a statement in the soul. I've heard music directors, for example, say that about children in the choir, that sometimes children join the choir with very little sense of their own theology or understanding of God. And after singing those hymns over and over and over again over time, they start to really articulate a sense of God in a way that um, makes him, the, the, the music director, quite gratified that not only are they create beautiful music, but they're being shaped in their belief. And so it's almost a kind of fake till you make it approach uh, that, um, you know, we, they, these prayers are really trying to teach us something and shape us in a way uh, as believers. I did last word on that. I, um, I you know, so the Lord's Prayer, when my father was passing away, it was just me and him alone in the room. And I remember touching him and saying that prayer over and over again. And, and, and it just came to me that way. So I think that's right. It's a sense of comfort that we, that we sometimes feel with what we've been taught. Well, thank you all very much for, uh, for letting me do this today. I appreciate it and, and, and appreciate everyone's input. And thank you, Father, for so much. Thank you. We'll see all of you next week for paragraph two. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Conversations at Christchurch Cranbrook. To learn more about our mission, worship services, and learning opportunities please visit us at ChristChurchCranbrook.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at ChristChurchCranbrook. We look forward to you joining us again, and may God bless you now and always.